0: So thankful that you are here today. I thought I'd talk a little about Thanksgiving and answer this question. The answer seems pretty obvious to you, I'm sure. When will Thanksgiving come? And the easiest answer to that is this Thursday. And you're probably thinking maybe Drew's the turkey. You know, maybe he needs to catch up on things. This Thursday, November 23rd. Thanksgiving, as you know, is every fourth Thursday of November, and I heard on the radio the other day that this year is the second earliest that Thanksgiving can, can be. I think you can have a Thanksgiving on November 22nd if the year lines up right. That means we have a lot of time to get ready for Christmas, more time than usual, which is good in some ways and bad in others. But uh, we can answer this question according to the calendar, And say November the 23rd but what if the question is this when will Thanksgiving come into my heart when will gratitude come into my heart that's a difficult one because we struggle hardship clouds our blessings hurt makes us bitter and we struggle to think of reasons why we should be grateful And in the text, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 11 has the Lord through Jeremiah promising to bring back the days to Jerusalem when people will again bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And they will sing, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It had been a long time, and it would be a long time before those songs Of Thanksgiving were sung in the streets of Jerusalem but Jeremiah says it will come a day of Thanksgiving will come and the question is when all of God's people who long for blessings wish when will it come and there are two ways to answer that question first of all we could say will it come when he does something in the world Most people are struggling with gratitude, and they're waiting on God to change their circumstances. They're asking for God to do something in the world. God, make my situation better. Change the circumstances around me. Give me this or take this away from me so that I can feel blessed and be grateful again and praise you for your goodness. So is that when it will come, when God does something in the world? The second way of looking at it is, it will come when God does something in you. The answer the text gives us is that God brings thanksgiving when we allow Him into our hearts. You'll never learn to be grateful, waiting on the circumstances to change. Something's always going to go wrong. You're always going to be able to find something negative to complain about. But there are also blessings all around you. And your heart has to be taught to look for the good and to see what God has done and count your blessings. It's not when God changes something in the world that thanksgiving will come into your heart. It's when God changes something in you. That's what this text is all about. Before we dive into the answer to the question as Jeremiah gives it, I want to draw three observations about this word thanksgiving the word used in the text, Jeremiah 33. First of all, in Hebrew, it's the same word for confession. So when you see acknowledgement or confession, it's usually the word used for thanksgiving in this text and in many others because in the Hebrew mind, thanksgiving was a form of confession. What are you confessing? You're confessing dependence. You're confessing that someone has given you a gift. You're confessing that you rely on others for good things in your life. And that spirit of confession, which is a spirit of humility and modesty, accompanies thanksgiving in the Bible. Number two, I also want to bring to your attention that in certain contexts, as here in Jeremiah 33, it refers to a sacrifice, namely the peace offering or the fellowship offering. The thanksgiving offering or the peace offering, the fellowship offering, is described many times in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was different from the burnt offering or the sin offering or the guilt offering because it was given spontaneously. You would bring this offering when things were at peace between you and God to express your gratitude for what God has done in your life, for an opportunity to worship Him and praise Him and express your fellowship with Him and His people. The fellowship offering or the thanksgiving offering was to be eaten on the day it was offered some of the meat was shared with the Levitical priests and the rest of it was divided up amongst the sacrificer and his friends and another interesting distinction about the peace offering is that uh, unlike the other offerings it was offered up by the person who brought the sacrifice The burnt offerings, for example, you'd bring the animal to the priest and he would sacrifice the animal for you. He would do the slaughtering and, and do everything for you. But the peace offering, you would bring it to the temple or the tabernacle, depending on the time, and you would offer the animal up yourself. The animal you raised, the animal you may have named, you would lead it to slaughter and you would kill it with your own hands. So it was very personal and it was a It was something that was done by someone not seeking forgiveness necessarily, but wanting to express thanks and fellowship with God. What are some modern-day equivalents? Well, you could think of any prayer, any song, any gift of love, any act of service done out of gratitude in your heart for what God has done in your life. That's our peace offerings today. One third observation about this word is it's used in the Old Testament. Thanksgiving is something that glorifies God. Look at Psalm 50, verse 23. The one who offers Thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. We're put on earth to glorify God, to bring recognition to his great name, to show the world that all good things come from him and that we all should bow before his mighty throne. One way to do this, a very important and essential way to do it is through gratitude and praise. Thanksgiving is not just something for us, something necessary in our lives. It's needful for God. It's needful in the sense that we are required to glorify God in this way. So it's not an option. It's a mandate that we should follow. And that's why we should be very interested in this question, when will Thanksgiving come? When will it come into our hearts? And it's answered by the prophet Jeremiah. Notice with me several answers to this question as we look at the text, starting in verse 1. Number 1, Thanksgiving will come after God speaks a second time. Look how the chapter opens. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court. Of the guard the book of Jeremiah is known as the book of the weeping prophet the other book Jeremiah penned was called lamentations Jeremiah is not known for his rosy outlook on life he lived through very difficult times in Jerusalem but chapters 30 through 31 in which our text is located is known as the most positive section of Jeremiah in the whole prophecy And the only time frame given for it is chapter 32, verse 1, which tells us this was during the 10th year of King Zedekiah. It was 587 B.C., just one year before the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It was still a time in which they were under siege. As you can see in verse 4, many buildings had been torn down in order to prevent the siege, and the Babylonians were at the gates. At this time, Jeremiah was as we read, shut up in the court of the guard. In other words, he was in prison, and God spoke to Jeremiah a second time during his confinement, the first being in chapter 30. He wasn't going to leave his prophet in the dark. God is faithful, and he lets his people know what they need to know to get through hard times. That's what is meant here by God speaking a second time. God is faithful to us. He will not leave us in the dark. He has confirmed His word and He has made it sure. This is a major theme in 2 Peter. Peter writes a couple of times in chapter 1 and chapter 3 saying, I know you already know these things. I'm writing these things to stir up your mind by way of reminder. I want you to know this a second time. And in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verse 19, after telling his readers about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where he and John and James were there to witness a Jesus' transfiguration, this glorious event. He mentioned that he had heard a voice from heaven, the voice of the majestic glory. And after talking about that experience, he tells his readers this in verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's saying... Yes, I heard a voice from heaven, but the word that's being preached to you by the apostles is more fully confirmed than that. And it's better for you to listen to the Bible than even the voice coming from heaven that I heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have more in the Bible than I had in that moment of glory. That's something that ought to encourage us in dark times when we're wondering when Thanksgiving will come. Go to the Bible. Read God's Word, drive the encouragement from it, and listen to the Lord. Number two, when will Thanksgiving come? Number two, after the Creator makes the world. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is His name. So Jeremiah takes great pains to point out a couple of things here. First of all, that the one who is making these promises is the one who made the world he is the creator himself and he says his name several times if you have Lord in all caps that's the personal name of God Yahweh which means something like self-existent one so why is he telling us here that Thanksgiving will come after the creator makes the world this isn't a sign of things to come the world has been made no big news here right so why is he saying this? He's saying it because he's reminding us the one who promises peace that will bring thanksgiving is the one who created the world. And if he's powerful enough to create the universe, can he not bring peace in your life that results in gratitude and thanksgiving to God? Indeed, he can. Number three, he will, thanksgiving will come after we call to him. Look at the first part of verse three. Call to me, and I will answer you. It's a simple equation. Call to God, pray to God, and He will answer you. It's an equation that is repeated over and over and over again throughout Scripture. For example, Psalm 3, 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. Psalm chapter 4, verse 3. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried from help. From His temple, He heard my voice, and my cry to Him reached His ears. And then Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Over and over again, this equation appears. You pray to God, God will hear your prayer. And beneath that promise to hear us when we pray are His immutable traits of omniscience, omnipotence, goodness, and holiness. His omniscience will not let Him forget that he made the promises to us. His omnipotence guarantees he will be able to perform what he has promised. His goodness will not let him disappoint us in failing to fulfill the promise, and his holiness will not let him misrepresent himself. If God promised it, it will come to pass. Therefore, we should be more concerned over whether we are hearing God than over whether he can hear us. God hears us when we cry out to Him. And He promises He will hear us when we pray, and He will respond with blessings. So if we're not being blessed and we're not feeling grateful, maybe we ought to ask ourselves, are we praying to the Lord? Maybe the problem's in our prayer life and not with God and what He's doing. He will bring thanksgiving after we call to Him. When will thanksgiving come? Number four, when you least expect it. Look at verse 3, the last part of it. He says, I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Hidden things comes from a word meaning cut off or to make inaccessible. It's often used of like a prison wall, a wall that's implacable, unscalable, that you cannot pass. Imagine, here's the imagery. Imagine a great wall, and behind that wall are secrets that you want to know. The answer to your prayer. Behind that wall are blessings God has in store for you in the future. All your hopes and dreams are behind that wall, and you can't see them at the moment. That's the imagery used here. And God, through Jeremiah, is telling His people, expect the unexpected. Just because you can't understand what God is up to, that does not mean He's not working in your favor and for your benefit. He will do things in His time, on His schedule, wait on The Lord remember God is timeless he is eternal he stands outside of time one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day you may grow impatient wanting him to come through for you you may think this is never going to get better wait on the Lord he is good and he will perform what he has promised number five when will Thanksgiving come after his wrath Is finished. Look at Jeremiah 33, verses 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. I realize the wording is a little confusing there, but Jeremiah is saying that Judah may, put up with a, Judah may put up a fight, but the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians here, the Babylonians will prevail over them in the siege no matter how hard they fight. They will not be able to prevent the destruction of their city and the holy temple in Jerusalem. God wants Jeremiah to recognize two important truths here. Number one, the destruction was happening because of his anger. This is God's wrath over sin that had been going on and on and on in Jerusalem for far too long. Number two, he wanted him to know this was happening because of Judah's wickedness. God had been warning them for 40, 40 years through Jeremiah alone, not to mention other prophets and other good people. And they just would not listen. And the time had come... For wrath you see sometimes God has to tear down before he can build up he can't bless us as long as we're stubbornly cleaning, clinging to our sin and so his wrath clears the way of all the obstacles for repentance to come and when repentance comes then comes the blessings that's where Thanksgiving is tied in first the wrath must come justice must be done The judge of all the earth must speak in his righteous indignation, and then upon repentance will come the blessings. But we must repent. We cannot allow his wrath over our sin to make us bitter. We can't shake our fists at God and blame him for what has gone wrong due to our disobedience. Humility and repentance is what is necessary. Then will come the blessings. Which leads us to number 6. When will Thanksgiving come? After a restoration. After you read about the destruction and the wrath of God in verses 4 and 5, Jeremiah pivots really suddenly in verse 6. Listen to what he says. Behold, I will bring to it, to the city, health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. You can understand maybe why Jeremiah was thrown into prison. He's preaching wrath and destruction and people didn't like that message. And he's saying right after that, there's going to be a restoration. Back in... um, Chapter, chapter 32, you learn why he was thrown into confinement. King, Hez, king Zedekiah was very angry with him because he'd been preaching the destruction of God's city. How can you, Jeremiah, say that God will tear down his own temple? And how can you say that me, the king, that I'll be taken captive by the Babylonians? You're, you're a traitor to this country. So they threw him into prison, and then Jeremiah says to a servant, I want you to go out to Anathoth, that's a village not far from Jerusalem, which would be in the, the wake of destruction. I want you to go out to Anathoth and buy me a piece of property. This isn't the behavior of someone we normally expect who's saying this place is going to be destroyed. That seems like a bad real estate investment, right? But that's what Jeremiah did, and he bought that property as a sign That in a few decades, it would be worth something again. Because this is how quickly God's going to turn things around. After His wrath will come a restoration. And people just couldn't believe their ears when He'd say these things. God has promised that He can bring beauty from ashes. I want to take you away from Jeremiah just for a moment. If you'll indulge me and turn over to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is very similar to Jeremiah in the way that it talks about restoration. It's not just restoration from something that has grown old, not just restoration from something people have torn down, restoration by God of something that he himself has has torn down in his wrath. And I'll read a few lines from the New King James Version here, starting in verse 1. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I'll skip a little. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities. The desolations of many generations. This is what the prophets were saying. God will tear it down and from the ashes will come beauty. This was very important to Jesus. This is the passage Jesus launched his public ministry with. Whenever he went to Nazareth to declare to his own hometown that he was the Messiah, this is the passage he turned to, Isaiah 61. He was the one that was going to restore liberty to the captives, to heal the brokenhearted, to bring beauty from ashes. You see this all through Jesus' ministry. I think it's interesting, you see a lot of the Beatitudes echoed in these words. If you go back over it, if your Bibles are open to Isaiah 61, look at verse 1 where he says, He will bring good news to the poor. You remember Matthew 5, 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or look at uh, verse 2. To comfort all who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you think it's any mistake that he returns in verse 3? Isaiah does to a faint spirit. Sounds like the poor in spirit again. And then in that same verse, verse 3, they shall be called oaks of righteousness. Do you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Go down to verse 7. Instead of your shame, Isaiah says, there shall be a double portion. Speaking of an inheritance, which reminds me of Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus thought about Isaiah 61 a lot. Why? Because it was all about His ministry. God has torn down things because of sin. Now God rebuilds in a way that no one can imagine possible, bringing beauty from ashes. God will bring thanksgiving after restoration. Number seven, He will bring thanksgiving... After he has done good. Verse 9, this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. He says, the city shall be to me a name. Names in the Bible are more than descriptions, they're identities. How does God want to be identified among the nations? He wants to be known as the one who does good for his people. And he's planning to do that, which will result in thanksgiving. Number eight, when will thanksgiving come? Before day and night cease. Twice in this chapter, Jeremiah brings up a covenant. A covenant that God has made with day and night. Look at at verse 20. In verse 20 he says, Thus says the Lord... If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests may be ministers. He's saying, just as sure as the sun rises and the sun sets, I will bring about my promises of restoration so that Thanksgiving may one day come he brings up another covenant. Verse 25, he adds, if I have not established my covenant with the fixed order of heaven and earth, as if to say the universe will fall apart before I break any of my promises. His promises are sure and they are certain. And then number nine, this is the last point. When will Thanksgiving come? Jeremiah says, Thanksgiving will come when the righteous branch springs up. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is what is known as messianic prophecy. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The righteous branch, who is he? This is a common name for the Messiah. Jeremiah uses it multiple other times in his prophecy. Isaiah used it. Zechariah used it. So the Jewish people had become familiar with that idea. and It's the idea of a descendant of David who will be the perfect king who will reign over all and deliver the people from their sins. It was a fulfillment of God's covenant with David, promising an everlasting kingdom that he gave in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of these prophe- prophecies. He is the son of David. He is the righteous branch springing up from the root of Jesse. I want you to focus here in this prophecy in Jeremiah 33, 15, and 16. Focus on the work of the Messiah, executing justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah says that when he does this, he says Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Lately, since war has burst out on the Middle East, a lot of people look at prophecies like this and many others and they think about the nation of Israel. And They think this may be telling us something is happening over in Israel that's going to usher in the end of time, at which time Jesus will finally come and sit on that throne in Jerusalem and rule over Israel as a powerful nation. Literal Israel and Judah did return back to their homeland 70 years after this prophecy was made, but they never reestablished an independent state ever again. Now, there was a little period we call during the intertestamental period between the writing of the books of Malachi and Matthew when a family called the Hasmoneans, they were a Jewish people, overcame the Seleucid kingdom, which is a Syrian kingdom that tried to Hellenize the world, tried to make them into a Greek culture and worship Greek gods. This Hasmonean family, the Maccabeans, also known by that name, they regained the independence for Israel for about 100 years. But it was 100 years of warfare, 100 years of strife, and it was short-lived because in 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took it over for Rome. And so that could not have been the fulfillment of this prophecy either. After World War II, the state of Israel was established in 1948. People started looking, this is the fulfillment. This is when Israel will be saved and will be secured and Christ will come and he will reign. We're still waiting. One war after another happens. War is happening now. We hear people speaking of literal fulfillment again. And yet, things continue as always. And my question is, is it possible that instead of pointing to the world, Jeremiah was pointing to justice and righteousness that God will work within us? The kind of justice and righteousness that brings Thanksgiving. Could there be a spiritual application here? Is it not possible that he's talking about the restoration Christ makes possible through the church, the kingdom of God? Could Christ not be this righteous branch that's working in us now, enabling our souls to be reconciled to God? I want to take you to three passages over in the New Testament by which we should interpret the prophecies we're reading here. The first one's Acts 13, 32 through 39. This is Paul preaching, and he says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Now listen to this. I will give you the holy and sure blessings... Of David does that not sound like the righteous branch the descendant of David I will give you the blessings of David Paul says he has done it he has fulfilled it he goes on in that sermon to say let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, what is Paul doing? He's declaring the coming of the righteous branch. Another passage I want to take you to is Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. We don't have time to read that whole thing. It's an analogy, or an allegory rather, between Hagar and Sarah and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant corresponds with the slave of Abraham, Hagar. The New Covenant with Hagar. Abraham's wife Sarah and he's saying the old covenant makes you slaves the new covenant makes you free and he says in verse 26 of Galatians 4 that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother now he's standing on earth why is he talking about the Jerusalem above if all of this is about a political kingdom here on earth it's a good question Let's go to a third passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he says, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think it's interesting, through that passage, Paul never uses the name Jesus How does he refer to Jesus? He keeps calling him Christ, which is the Greek equivalent to Messiah, meaning king or anointed one. The one spoken of by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33, when he talks about a time when the righteous branch shall spring up and Judah shall be secure and Jerusalem shall be safe. When will that Thanksgiving come? Paul says it'll come with the coming of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what is he going to do? He's going to die in our place so that we may be reconciled to God. And friends, if, if you can think of a better reason to give thanks to God than that, then you're smarter than me. I can't think of anything better to praise God for than the liberation of sin, than to be free from the debt that I owed that was going to end in condemnation. And to know I don't have to live eternally apart from God. I can live with God, and not even death can take that away from me. Is there anything to be more grateful for than that? I can't think of it. Thanksgiving has come, and it's come through the righteous branch. It's come with Jesus. He was sent according to the word spoken a second time. The word made more sure. He was sent by the creator of the universe. He was sent in response to prayer. He was sent when, in a way, least expected, although it was at the right time. He was sent to finish God's wrath on the cross. He was sent to restore all things by redeeming us from our sins and reconciling us to God. He was sent according to the goodness of God. He was sent as surely as the sun rises and sets, and He is the righteous branch of prophecy, the Son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of God. He is the king of our lives. Have you made him king of your life? Do you have cause to give thanks to God? Are you praising him out of gratitude in your hearts over what he's done for you, liberating you from your sin, or are you still waiting for the righteous branch to come? He has come, and safety and security is here. That peace can be yours if you'll come into obedience with Christ. By believing in Him, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you walking faithfully with Him? Are you grateful? Do you need to change your perspective and look at all the things God has given you? We're going to give you that opportunity if you need some help to come forward as we stand and sing this song. Will you come?